Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Yes, investors, this is the show for you. I'm Michelle Martin, joined by Arun Pai today in Money and Me. The markets swinging back and forth. It's so hard to to see a silver lining. Are there any? We're going to find out with Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Asia Collect. He's going to help us break down some of uh, what the markets have been talking about. Welcome to the show, Arun. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing well. Listen, a committee of um, WeWork directors is suing SoftBank for backing out of a plan to buy three billion U.S. dollars of WeWork shares. Do you think WeWork stands a chance of winning? So it's an interesting state where you know previously SoftBank had said that uh, aside from the amount of debt and equity it was going to pump into SoftBank to try and uh, save itself from bankruptcy. They have said that they're going to provide $3 billion to shareholders of uh, WeWork so that they can buy out shares from them. Now, obviously, given what has happened in the last couple of months uh, and generally like the, uh, you know, the mess that SoftBank is in, is in in general through the other investment companies and other investment holdings that it has, they basically told the board that we will not be cashing out, uh, you know, the ex-CEO of WeWork Newman. We will not be cashing out a couple of other VC firms and other investors. Uh, it's not going to happen because uh, circumstances have changed. Now, the board came out saying, uh, no, this is buyer's remorse, which basically means you would agree to a commitment. You sign them the dotted lines. And now just because of uh, various activities that are out of both of our hands, you're trying to like back out of the deal by claiming that the price is too high. Uh, SoftBank has obviously vetted this through its legal, uh, through its lawyers extensively, I'm sure. Nobody wants like a long drawn out court case in this. Mm. It ends up being nobody is the winner. And we all know that we were definitely does not have the cash to try and uh, stake this kind of a battle. Uh, will some of the larger investors like uh, Newman and uh, there was one large VC firm also who stood to make something like $600 million out of this, mm. will they decide to foot the bill potentially? But, uh, you know, SoftBank definitely has uh, something is going for it where they can easily claim that they're the ones who are supporting the company to begin with. Pretty much every other investor has uh, decided to like take its hands off uh, WeWork. Mm-hmm. So they can potentially come to some kind of uh, much smaller arrangement or agreement is how I see this uh, situation ending. Without the funding, is this the end for WeWork, Arun? So that's the interesting thing. This $3 billion was not a cent, not even a cent of it was actually going to go to the company. Mm. So uh, the money that was required for WeWork and, you know, God knows they'll probably need a lot more, that was already paid by SoftBank in the last couple of months. This $3 billion was purely to buy out the investors, the existing investors in the company, so that SoftBank can take a larger ownership share. And hence, which is, which is why SoftBank is like, you know what, I don't care about the like, cashing out the investors. I don't want to give a billion dollars to Newman when he's come up with this company that potentially might go bankrupt and in the process lose something like $10 billion to SoftBank. So that's where the big disconnect is. Where SoftBank, I am sure, will put, will put in, you know, potentially more uh, good money after bad, 
and try to keep WeWork still alive, be it in a smaller state. But in cashing out shareholders at a time like this, hmm. uh, you know, obviously SoftBank sort of like try and lawyer up and uh, try to like prolong this as much as possible, or at least get a substantial discount to what they had previously agreed on. What does all this mean for SoftBank now? So it's interesting uh, where, you know, SoftBank's share price, uh, which is listed on the, uh, on the Japan exchange, has gone from something like 57.50, which is, I think, the top just a couple of months ago, mm. down to 27.50. This is all in yen, down to 2,750 yen. And after they came out saying that they're going to be selling uh, $40 billion worth of assets, Alibaba, etc., uh, it's rallied all the way back up to 4,200-odd. I think, uh, you know, this $3 billion, while a decently la- uh, large sum of money, I think the bigger issue for SoftBank is they've put in a substantial amount of capital into startup companies that uh, basically were loss-making uh, or, and tremendously loss-making at that and dealing especially with the whole gig economy setup. So if you look at, uh, uh, you know, various companies like uh, Oyo, which is this uh, hotel Airbnb equivalent, uh, which is headquartered in India, mm-hmm. you obviously have uh, WeWork. Uh, you have companies like Uber that have, uh, that have come off substantially after IPOing. So a whole host of their investment companies require substantial amounts of cash. And who were their largest, uh, you know, buyers into this kind of a strategy uh, previously? It was the Saudi Arabian, uh, you know, sovereign wealth fund, and we all know the kind of mess that uh, the, the oil crash has caused uh, for balancing the budget of Saudi Arabia. So there is no chance that uh, the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia is now going to put in another thirty or forty billion dollars into the second vision fund. So you have uh, capital uh, from external investors that is potentially not buying into Masasan's story of you know, he has something like a 300-year vision plan. And so you have all these investors who are not buying into that. And if that doesn't happen, uh, the only uh, survival chance for SoftBank is to keep selling off its good quality assets like Alibaba to ensure that it can try and at least prop up its massive uh, investment investments in these cash-burning startups. And, uh, you know, who knows when the what the end game is, right? Because if this pandemic continues for three to five months more, SoftBank is requiring to put in a whole host of more capital or just let them go bankrupt. Either way, it's going to be a very messy situation. I want to pick up on this theme of funding. So while funding is drying up for many companies, some large startups are demonstrating that they can still attract financing. There are two high-profile examples this week, Airbnb and the messaging company Slack. So Airbnb raised $1 billion in new financing from two investment firms. Slack is selling $600 million US dollars in new debt that can be converted into stock. So Arun, I'll ask for your take on the two companies in a moment. But first, what are your thoughts on what it takes to raise money in a period like the one that we're going through right now? I mean, any VC investor, any distressed fund uh, that I have been talking to, and because we are looking to raise capital in my company, Asia Collect also, Mm. pretty much any single investor that I've been talking to, uh, their advice, while they're not uh, opening up their purse strings just yet, uh, every single person's advice is just try and raise as much capital as possible because who knows what's going to happen in the next three to six months. Now, I can appreciate that the public market space 
uh, is going along a slightly different tune right now with uh, equity markets having corrected close to like 20-25% from the lows. But on the other hand, in the private market space, it's a, it's a completely different ballgame right now where uh, many investors are now getting to be uh, becoming a lot more afraid of trying to put money into these cash-burning startups. And so the word on the street and all the advice is try and raise as much cash as possible currently. Mm. It's extremely difficult. All right, let's turn to Airbnb for a look now. It isn't publicly traded yet, but it was hoping to list this year. Do you think that's still going to happen? And if so, would you buy it? I mean, honestly, Michelle, I did not think the public markets would behave the way they have in the past two weeks. Mm-hmm. Like, don't take me wrong. You know, we had a conversation about like three weeks ago, and I was saying it makes sense to start dipping your toes into the market uh, because there was a massive correction. Yeah. But I think the speed of the volatility with which uh, the velocity with which the markets have been slammed down uh, post, you know, mid-Feb, and now this crazy rally in the past, like about two weeks odd, has caught a lot of people off guard. That being said, as a prudent investor, I still think that this rally, uh, you know, was a little bit too much, a little bit too quickly. And I think we really need to see earnings results from companies that are coming out, like Starbucks came out yesterday. Uh, a lot of companies have withdrawn their guidance completely. I think the world is obviously in a better situation than it was a couple of weeks back. But are we completely out of this yet? Not so much. To answer your question about Airbnb versus Slack, it's quite interesting, right? They're two completely uh, opposite companies where Airbnb is all about the whole sharing economy, uh, people traveling from one place to the other, trying to get a cheaper alternative to a hotel. And then you have Slack on the other hand, which is purely a work from home office productivity uh, software. Both raised, well, Airbnb, you know, as you were mentioning, raised like a billion dollars. Slack raised slightly over half a billion. But the interest rates are uh, massively different. Like the cost of raising that debt for Slack was many multiples cheaper than that of Airbnb. So you're starting to see this massive disconnect and divide now where investors are not believing so much or they're taking a lot more of a prudent approach to these gig economy companies, this, uh, the, any company that's in the transportation, hospitality, F&D space. And they're pu- putting in a lot of money into companies like Slack, Team uh, through Microsoft, uh, Amazon, uh, Zoom, you name it, right? Like a lot of pe- money has been made in that field currently. You think nobody would want to, to share a couch right now and there'd be less confidence in Airbnb and perhaps more confidence in Slack because Slack is a workplace messaging platform, as you say. It's been getting a lot of traction because most of us work from home. But in terms of the space that it's in, do you think it's it's getting a little too crowded? How do you think Slack's going to fare? It, it, it definitely seems to be. You know, as a value investor, the kind of multiples that uh, Zoom uh, Slack are, are trading on right now are extremely steep. Like this situation to potentially, uh, you know, to make these valuations justifiable are going to be, I think it narrows it down to two factors. One is how long will this pandemic continue for, which forces companies to keep its employees at home? And secondly, how quickly and what to what other means can, uh, you know, the chairman or the founders of these uh, work-from-home productivity softwares try to monetize their software a lot better. Because, you know, it's obviously a very difficult uh, situation and it's like an investor relations nightmare 
to start charging uh, extra money to be able to use like Google Hangouts or Microsoft yeah. Team or mm-hmm. Zoom or Slack, it's a very scary thing. So could they get away with, you know, in terms of if you want to go into pure economics of supply and demand, your demand has gone up so much, you would typically try and like raise the prices accordingly, right? But mm-hmm. the amount of backlash they will receive from the entire world uh, if they even think of doing that. So it, it, it might be difficult to monetize uh, stuff like this uh, at a large scale, I should say, uh, during pandemics. And in fact, you, and rightfully so, you kind of see the opposite where larger companies like Google and Microsoft, for that matter, have said, you know what, you want to use, uh, if schools and any other, other education institution wants to use Hangouts uh, and uh, Teams, etc., we are more than happy to provide it for free because, you know, this is not the time to try and monetize uh, customers. I'm speaking with Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Asia Collect, veteran investor. Arun, you know, the world breathed a sigh of relief when we saw Wuhan coming back to life, China increasingly getting back to business. How long do you think it's going to take for the Chinese economy to recover? And is now a good time to buy Chinese stocks? So it's an interesting question. And sadly, you know, there, uh, there's no way to look into a crystal ball and try and gauge uh, what the actual end result is going to be. That being said, a couple of green shoots that can be seen is, you know, look at Apple, right? Pretty much all of their stores are open in China. And it's basically every other store of Apple around the world has been shut. Uh, there was an interview with uh, Louis Vuitton's uh, LVMH's, uh, the parent company of Louis Vuitton the CEO saying that uh, they've opened up all of their stores except for for two of them, and they're starting to see a little bit more business come in. Uh, Capital Land uh, had a really good product launch where they could sell out all of its apartments uh, in a uh, apartment building complex. And basically all the buyers who were Chinese were sitting and buying this through uh, just looking at the recordings and videos of the apartment online, and they decided to purchase apartments. In one mall of Capital Land in China, uh, in the month of March, uh, they basically generated five times the revenue of January and February sales combined. Now, obviously, that's an extremely low base. And while Capital Land sadly did not mention the exact number, and so that we can try and compare it to, say, October to December of last year, at least we are seeing some uh, people coming out and go, uh, life is coming back to some kind of a normal. So that is on the good side. Uh, from the investment perspective, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very, uh, since it's a very closed economy uh, for investors, you could see the Shanghai exchange at close to something like 3,100 uh, $3, points at the end of the year. At the low, it pro- and now it's like close to about 2,800 uh, points, having dropped just pro- probably about a couple of hundred more uh, two weeks ago. So 3,100 or 2,800 right now is about a 10% drop. Now, uh, now, obviously, now that's just on a relative basis. It's also about valuations and uh, seeing whether growth will come back into the country. Uh, as investors sitting outside of China, it's obviously extremely difficult to take uh, positions uh, you know, directly into the exchange over there. But that being said, you have many ADRs or American Depository Receipts, which are companies like uh, JD.com, which is a massive uh, e-commerce seller there. They are listed in uh, the U.S. So to try and get exposure into China, uh, you can take a look at all of these ADRs or obviously ETFs. 
And I definitely do sense some value coming up in that space because this, through these draconian quote-unquote measures uh, that most of the worldwide media was saying uh, that, you know, China has uh, taken upon itself in the month of Jan and Feb, mm. there seems to be the results of that coming out right now where uh, the virus definitely seems to be a lot more in control now over there as compared to the rest of the world presently. Yes, and speaking of those draconian measures that work, Michael Burry, the investor who famously bet against mortgage securities before the 2008 financial crisis, well, he's taken to Twitter with a controversial message that the cure is worse than the disease. Michael Burry is saying the lockdowns intended to contain COVID-19 are worse than the disease itself. He, he believes that lockdowns cause millions of layoffs and huge economic contraction and notes that low-income and minority families are the most affected. What do you think? Is Barry right or is he myopic? <laughs> uh, so he, you're completely right in the point of, you know, he brings up a lot of interesting points wherein uh, domestic abuse, uh, people with uh, pre-existing conditions suffering, uh, old age people especially who are locked in at home, what is going to happen to their mental health uh, after like two months of lockdown? Will they ever be able to even recover? And then obviously we're hearing horror stories from, uh, you know, at least countries that uh, I operate in, which is India, Indonesia and Vietnam, where you have a really large percentage of daily wage workers who need to, like they live hand to mouth, right? Like you need to be sitting and working every day to earn enough money to pay for your food and a roof over your head. And because of these lockdowns, uh, you've just seen a complete shutdown of economies. Think about all those, you know, places that you used to travel to in the past, right? Like all those beautiful tourist attraction centers. Uh, they used to have hundreds of uh, tour guides of these small little stores selling memorabilia outside it. Their revenue has dropped to zero overnight, and that was their only source of income. So he brings about a very valid point where you have... Uh, countries that are suffering a lot more than your more affluent countries like, say, Singapore, Germany, the U.S., where you have uh, in those latter more affluent countries, you can have the government sitting and basically paying uh, Social Security, uh, daily wages or monthly wages, unemployment benefits, etc. But you just can't pull that off in the more emerging market economies. Mm-hmm. So to that point, I think, you know, Bari makes a lot of sense. But at the end of the day, you know, it's all about balancing the short-term needs of ensuring our healthcare system is not overburdened, leading to a massive spike in debts, vis-a-vis the more longer-term implications of a sustained loss of economic activity. And it's all about getting that balance of the two, which I think, you know, Singapore is a country that's done phenomenally well in that, where... It tried to keep its economy humming along for as much as possible. But then when they realized, uh, you know, the past three, four days, uh, we are seeing a lot more of a spike of unlinked cases. Okay, you know what? Let's have a circuit breaker. Let's reset this. Shut the country down to as much of an extent as possible. Ensure that the healthcare system is not overburdened, while at the same time, uh, you know, ensuring that we will try to restart the economy as quickly as possible, but in as safe a manner as possible.
And speaking of balance, people are you know, wondering how to fiddle with their portfolios and what to do with the weightings. I was reading hedge fund manager Ray Dalio saying, again, cash is trash, arguing that with <laughs> interest rates so low and central banks printing money left and right, there are better assets to hold on to. Now, this seems to be a contrarian view. And many investors, let me brag a little, including Jim Rogers, who was on this show two days ago, they're holding on to U.S. dollars. So, Aaron, what do you think? Is Dalio right? Is cash trash? <laughs> so the phrase, if I'm not mistaken, cash is trash, was uttered by Ray Dalio. But the time frame of when it was uttered, I think, was uh, a couple of months before, uh, before this whole crisis situation even came about. Which, you know, obviously, looking at hindsight is 2020. And, you know, maybe he wished he didn't say that exact phrase two weeks or a month before one of the world's largest uh, uh, pandemics that we have ever seen. But, uh, you know, coming back to uh, the situation right now, uh, I think it's definitely prudent, uh, regard, uh, keeping aside the 20, 22% rally that we've seen, at least in the U.S. markets, it does make sense to have a certain amount of uh, gunpowder, having a certain amount of arsenal uh, within your portfolio to try and ensure uh, that you are well protected in case the situation worsens a lot. Now, that does not mean to take a completely, uh, you know, scared approach and sit fully in cash because at the end of the day, you have central banks around the world trying to ensure that asset prices are as stable as they can be, be it in uh, not just government bonds, but at least uh, investment grade bonds also for companies. And in some cases, some uh, central banks like uh, Japan is actually investing money into the equity markets also. So given the bazooka that central banks across the world have shot, uh, investors have no choice but to try and like ride on its coattails. But uh, that being said, you know, definitely keeping a certain percentage in cash because who knows how bad the situation, mm. especially for unemployment and what happens to SMEs. I think those are the two indicators that every investor should be looking out for. SMEs in general, you know, they take up like 70% of uh, the employment in every world. You know, you hear all the news articles about your Googles, Facebook, Netflixes, etc. But at the end of the day, they only employ like 100,000, 200,000 people uh, per company. The actual employment backbone of pretty much any economy and country in the world are SMEs. Mm. And which is why it's so important to ensure that banks, governments, are backstopping those businesses because at the end of the day, those guys do not have the option to go into the public market space or go into the bond space like your Airbnb and Slack that we talked about earlier to raise enough working capital to keep their lights on for two to three months. Because if this continues for slightly longer than that, you know, leave alone your Marquee, Lavo, Zook, etc., uh, which are going to go bankrupt because there's no way they can open their doors for the next six months, foreseeably at least right now, you will have all these SMEs uh, toppling over next. And that can be extremely scary. So what is your take on the U.S. dollar right now? I mean, is it still the best currency to hold? So it's interesting where, you know, like I've seen all these news articles about, oh, the Fed is printing like $2 million, $3 million. This is going to lead to a massive uh, unwinding of the U.S. dollar and people should be going into like Bitcoin or some other kinds of asset classes like that. Okay, look, the bottom line is, tell me one country or one central bank that is not printing money currently. 
Bank of Indonesia came out with like a 50-year bond uh, yesterday. And so the Treasury or the government issues these bonds, and who's sitting and buying it? Their central bank, which is the only way they could get to like a 4.4 or 4.5% yield. Every government across the world is basically printing cash to try and save its local economy. So you push forth this pandemic for, say, like two to three months. If this is continuing, where would you decide to invest your money? In Indonesia or the Philippines or Vietnam? Or would you rather go to the U.S. government? My personal take is it would be the latter, right? Like it, it is, at the end of the day, the safest economy, the country with the, most, with the largest resources in case this pandemic worsens. So uh, while I've seen a lot of horror stories about US dollar, at least in the foreseeable future, given that every country, every central bank across the world has printed, give or take the same amount of uh, its currency proportionate to its economy, I personally don't see the US dollar collapsing anytime soon. Great investment ideas there. Thank you, as always, for joining us. The wonderful Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Asia Collect. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.